Well, if you would, would you open a Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 5? And if you would, would you join me by standing and to recognize this is the very word of God? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, send your spirit. Open our eyes, enlighten our understanding, incline our hearts to receive. Fill us with faith that we might entrust, obey what we hear today. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You may return to your seats. Where is God when we experience setbacks, losses, when we have failed and we've made terrible mistakes? Well, I'm convinced that what you think about God, how you conceive of his involvement in your life, can either make you strong and wiser and actually open for you new vistas in life, Uh, or it will crush you, and it will drive you to the depths of despair. Truett Cathy was a born entrepreneur. Uh, At the age of eight, he discovered that 
he could buy a six-pack of uh, Cokes um, uh, for a, a dollar and sell them for a nickel apiece and make a 20% uh, profit. It wasn't long uh, before uh, he began to buy Cokes by the case. And when the weather turned cold and there uh, wasn't as much opportunity with Cokes, he opened a magazine stand. By the age of 11, he was helping with a paper route. By age 12, he owned his own route. Now, Truett served in the Army during the Second World War. And upon his discharge, he decided he wanted to go into the restaurant uh, business. And his dream was to do this with his brother, uh, Ben. And after they learned a little bit about the business and they scraped together some uh, cash, uh, they uh, built their first restaurant uh, in Hapeville, Georgia. It was known as the Dwarf Grill. It was open 24 hours a day, uh, uh, six days a week. And though it required long hours, uh, it was profitable from the very first week it had been opened. But it wasn't very long before Truett faced several major setbacks. The first came only three years in the business. His two brothers were taking a private uh, airplane to Chattanooga, and the plane crashed and killed both of them. Now, it's a hard thing to lose your business partner. It's tragic to lose both of your brothers in the same day. The shock of this uh, uh, stayed with Truett for a while, but eventually as he uh, moved past the immediate shock, uh, uh, he went on alone in the business. He made sure that after uh, one year that he was able to give Eunice, Ben's wife, uh, her share of the value of the business. And a year after that, he opened his second restaurant. And it seemed like things were going pretty well until he got a phone call uh, late one night. His second uh, restaurant was on fire. He rushed there to see if anything could be saved, but it was totally devastated. On top of that, he had failed to buy adequate insurance for the restaurant. And then within a few weeks of that, uh, Truett received a report from his doctor that he had polyps in his uh, colon and he would need surgery. One surgery led to two and he was out of commission for numerous uh, months. Right at the very moment when he needed uh, to get back and get his business on his feet, he's laid uh, aside and it uh, felt for him like an eternity. And at that point, he faced some choices about how to think about uh, what was happening in his life and what God was up to. Was God telling him to quit the business? Uh, uh, telling him to just leave it all together with all its heartache? Uh, if God wanted him in the business, why had all these terrible things happened to him? Well, he kept his faith, and while laying in the hospital, Betty had this idea about a chicken sandwich. Now, chicken had been on the menu of the restaurant, but he thought, well, what if we spiced it just so, fried it to perfection, put it on a bun with just the right condiments? Well, you know the rest of the story. 
Today, there are 3,000 Chick-fil-A's, and they do $11 billion in sales. But here's the thing. Don't miss this. It would have never happened if he had not experienced the setbacks that he had. Now, he kept his faith, and he realized that these setbacks and losses didn't have to define his future. Truett Cathy trusted even though life was painful and hard. God was not limited by the deaths of his brothers, the loss of his restaurant, or even his long hospitalization. These setbacks did not limit or undo God's plan for uh, Truett Cathy's life. And there's something like this happening in our text uh, this morning. God reveals that he's not limited by Israel's failures, uh, by their losses, or their setbacks. And this text gives us instruction about how we ought to rightly think about God and his involvement uh, in our lives in the midst of those difficult circumstances. Israel needs to learn an important lesson, this lesson. And God has a thing or two to teach the Philistines as well. The first point's this, that God's mighty hand is revealed. And to appreciate how this is an instructive lesson, you need to just go back and see the events that we looked at last time from the vantage point of the Philistines now, and, the, and the Israelites. Now, the Israelites... Uh, not only have lost 34,000 people on the battlefield, their high priest and his uh, sons have died, but the ark of God is now in the hands of their most bitter enemies. God's glory has left them, and they're left wondering who will fight for them. If the Philistines attack now, we'll be wiped out. And both Israel and the Philistines are about to get a lesson in the freedom and the power of God. You see, they've both been looking at the events they've experienced uh, through their own deficient theology, their own deficient way of thinking about God. The Philistines are like everybody in the ancient uh, world. When the Lord had victory over uh, Egypt, it meant that he was a force to be reckoned with. This is a God you don't mess around with. But when uh, he is defeated, they conclude that he's just small potatoes as gods go, that he can't stand up to their God, uh, Dagon. Israel, uh, Israel, uh, sees has a view of God uh, that all is lost. Um, uh, God uh, has done the unthinkable in letting the ark be captured, and they think it is the end of the world. But our story shows us God can take care of himself, and he can take care of his reputation. Both Israel and the Philistines are going to get a lesson in the freedom and the power of God. Now, it happened this way. After the battle in chapter 4, the Philistines take the ark of God and they put it in the temple of their principal god, Dagon. They were engaged in god napping. 
or if you want to think of it this way, the ark is a war trophy, and the Lord God is a prisoner of war. That's why they've put him right there uh, in Dagon's temple. That's what they think. And when they get up the next morning, uh, the priests discover that Dagon is laying flat on his face. Now, William Tyndall, as he translates this passage, really gets at the sense of this. And when he writes, uh, Dagon lay groveling upon the ground. Dagon's being humiliated in his own territory. Ancient people believed gods had their power in their territories and in his very own temple. So they prop him back up, and the very next night his uh, head and his hands are cut off and placed on the threshold, the, the, the base of where the doors of the temple open. God is at war with Dagon, and Dagon is now a casualty. He is just a lifeless uh, statue uh, which can be broken to pieces like Humpty uh, Dumpty. The God of the Philistines is no God at all. He's only an idol. And the contest between the Lord God and Dagon, it's clear. The Lord God is uh, the victor. And it was clear to the Philistines because they memorialized this day. They include it as a part of their worship service. In, in Ashdod, they never step on the threshold. They have never forgotten uh, that day. What they thought would be their home court advantage, that the ark is uh, in their home, has proven uh, to be empty. God is not limited to Israel's territory. God is uh, free. He's not chained to the throne on the ark. God wasn't a POW, and he wasn't done yet uh, demonstrating his freedom and power. We read in verse 6 that God's heavy hand is upon the Philistines. That is the hand of his power. And by that hand, he sends a plague. And it results in a crisis for the Philistines. They have a big problem. They have the ark of the God of Israel among them. And so a political decision is sought. The five rulers of the principal cities are brought together, and like so many political decisions, this doesn't work out so well. Um, and uh, they decide to move the ark to Gath. And the reason for this is uh, really pretty obvious. The Philistines were seagoing people on Ashdod's on the coast, and they knew by experience that pestilence and plagues and diseases could come, especially from rodents, off a ship. And so they move into Gath, which is inland. They just want to, you know, this wasn't just a coincidence. They want to make sure it wasn't a coincidence. And uh, it doesn't solve their problem, and things go from bad to worse. The city's in a panic, and so they send it to the next city, uh, to Ekron. And the Lord strikes these people with greater and greater intensity. The God of Israel's making war, not just on Dagon, but the people of Philistia. God's heavy hand is upon them. Now, you need to appreciate what's going on here, because in the last chapter, we had the glory of God going into exile as it went into Philistia. The glory of God uh, was lost, and here we have the heavy hand of God, and the word 
heavy in Hebrew has the same root uh, letters as the word glory. God's glory is being revealed in his power against uh, the Philistines. Uh, God's glory is seen here just as it was seen in Egypt through the plagues he brought there. So what are we to learn from this? Well, it is that God uses failure to reveal himself further to Israel. Don't ever underestimate God. Uh, God can take care of himself. He can take care of his reputation. And uh, he has all of this in his hands. Don't put God in a box. The Philistines think they have defeated God, but they haven't. Uh, God is at work uh, to restore his glory among uh, his people. Here's the freedom and the power of God. Uh, and this truth, this teaching that's right here is really exhibited throughout the Old Testament. That God rules over the nations, keys at work in the details of our lives. Let's just pause for a moment and think with me. You know, have you taken this to heart? When you think about a uh, big picture about the country, its state, the moral confusion, how they're just one problem after another that seems to be beyond solution, that there are deep divisions in the country, the possibility of getting uh, those who lead us to work together for a common solution seems increasingly harder and harder to achieve. And there's growing uh, political violence. People simply can't talk to each other uh, anymore. Are you worried about that? Do you worry about uh, the economy? Do you worry about the world? your children, or some of you, your grandchildren, and a few of you, your great-grandchildren are growing up in. The Lord God is in control. Are you worried about your health? Are you worried about your personal economy, uh, your job, how things are going to work out for you uh, financially? Look up to heaven. The Lord your God is the Lord of history. He, in his power and freedom, has promised to take care of you if you are one of his people. Do we really act like this? We confess it. I know that probably every one of you believes that he is the Lord of history and he is Lord in your life. But in the living of life and the way you're living, is, does it line up? Uh, with this. Here's something else. Our mistakes and our failures do not limit God. Our setbacks, the things that happen to us that seem to just derail our lives, do not limit God. In fact, failure is one of God's best gifts to you. Failure is one of his best gifts to you. If you will take responsibility for your part in it, and if you don't get stuck looking at your role in what happened. 
if you're willing to learn from it. A very successful businessman once uh, told me that his father had said, a wise man learns from his mistakes, and a very wise man learns from the mistakes of other people. Now, you can tell whether you actually think this is true by whether you can laugh at your failures. If you can laugh, it may take a little while to get to where you can laugh about some of these things, but where you can laugh about your mistakes. You see, if you can't laugh at those things, once you get a little distance between them, you probably have something else that's functionally your God. If you can't laugh at this, you're, you're missing something. Now, God is turning Israel's failure into an opportunity to further reveal uh, his glory and also to have a good laugh. Now, if you weren't at all tickled by this story, maybe not today, but uh, in reading it at some point, well, you're really missing something because it's meant to be funny. And you can just imagine Israelite soldiers sitting around warming themselves at a campfire recounting this uh, story. They might say to themselves something like, well, who, who would have ever thought that we uh, uh, could conceive that Dagon would be more powerful than the Lord our God? What kind of thinking? What were we thinking? And uh, I wished I'd been there to see the look on the priest of Dagon's face <laughs> when they find Dagon laying on the floor. One thing God likes to do is he likes to la a laugh at the expense of false gods. God likes to laugh at the expense of idols. And this brings us to our second point, the second main lesson. Uh, God knocks down idols including mine and yours. God knocks down idols, including uh, mine or yours. One of the most famous passages about idolatries in the prophet Isaiah, it's in the 44th chapter, and it just drips with sarcasm. Uh, uh, the passage describes uh, how it is that a carpenter uh, takes a choice uh, piece of cedar or cypress, and uh, then Isaiah writes this. It becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god of it and worships. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he roasts his meat and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. And he prays and says, deliver me, for you are my God. God is just ridiculing these uh, idols. And if he can't get you to laugh with him at idols and false gods, if he, you won't learn how to do that about your idols, well, he might just give you a couple of large servings of failure and fear to get your attention and to awaken faith and exclusive loyalty to himself. Now, idols are a big deal in the Bible and not just in the Old Testament. John, as he closes his first letter, writing about how to have a 
dynamic fellowship with uh, God and Jesus Christ, how to live in dynamic relationship with him, closes with these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul, in the letter to uh, the Ephesians, writes about idolatry. He says, covetousness are desires that are misshaped, misdirected, are idolatry. In fact, if you were to look carefully at what the Bible teaches, you would see that behind every concrete act of sin is that we are serving some idol. Something that we think at some level makes our lives better. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. And Isaiah goes on and he talks about one of the dynamics that happens with idols. They fool us. They deceive us. The reason the carpenter can cut a piece of wood and burn half of it and fix his dinner and the other half he carves into an idol is is that he's been deceived by the presence of the idols. Now, I experienced this uh, very powerfully at one point in uh, my life. Um, I uh, began uh, to see, as God allowed me to be humiliated, sometimes that's how humility grows. You have to be humiliated to find uh, true uh, humility. Uh, by experiencing defeat and failure after failure with my irritation uh, and my anger. And I was grieved by it. Um, I was grieved by the hurt I'd caused. I was grieved that I just could not uh, have mastery seemingly uh, over it. And I uh, would confess my sin and uh, fall down uh, with uh, grief and uh, seemingly uh, repent asking God and promising God uh, for deep uh, change and that I wouldn't do this again. As I sought uh, forgiveness and forgiveness, I found myself just though falling back into it until uh, God's word gave me perspective through the writing of Dick Winter, uh, who wrote a book about perfectionism. And as I read through that book, I began to see that I was a perfectionist and that underneath perfectionism is a desire to be able to control, to have godlike control. And I especially wanted to have godlike control over time. I wanted to be able to control uh, what I got done every day. I wanted to be able to control what interruptions uh, came into my uh, life. I wanted to be able to control the events of the day. You know, there would be nothing like a car that wouldn't start that would ruin a whole day uh, for me. And when I saw that my idol was control and I began to repent of that, and to remind myself of the truth of who God was, that I was not in control, that he was, I uh, broke through not only the deception, but I began to experience real freedom from anger. Now, uh, my heart is still an idol factory, and sadly so is yours, dear friends. 
And there are all kinds of idols. They're very common, ordinary idols. Uh, work, which is commanded by God and is a good thing, can become an idol. Uh, it becomes uh, something that people pursue so exclusively that relationships suffer and other responsibilities are neglected. Family, which God himself instituted, uh, can become an idol. If you're so preoccupied with your family that no one outside your family is cared for. Being well-liked. There's nothing wrong with wanting uh, to be well-liked. It's a legitimate uh, desire. But it becomes an idol uh, if uh, your desire for it means that you're never willing uh, to have a confrontation with somebody. You're never willing to risk a conflict uh, for uh, the good, their good. There are many, many categories of idols, and I'm not going to explore them all. But I am going to suggest to you that uh, if you're curious about the big idea idols, that perhaps you will go and find Idols for Destruction, uh, uh, which is subtitled The Conflict of Christian Faith and American Society by Herbert Schlossberg. It's uh, prefaced uh, by uh, Robert uh, Bork and a forward by Charles Coulson. And Schlossberg works through all sorts of idols, and one of his uh, primary theses is not just big ideas, uh, like capitalism or communism, or education, democratic institutions, that somehow these are going to usher in uh, some kind of Eden uh, for us, uh, but uh, that this, for the church, is a place of compromise. The church is very drawn uh, to these idols, and it gets mixed up with what it means uh, to be a Christian. Well, you need to learn to detect your idols. You need to unmask them the way that God does in Isaiah. Um, and uh, my control idol needed to be unmasked because I thought if I could control everything, well, then my life would be in Eden. I just, I'd be in this beautiful garden uh, where everything is right. Uh, uh, the, the lie of materialism is, is that it will dry every tear. The lie of money and wealth is that it will dry every tear. The lie of acceptance is that you will be happy if you have a life that's free of conflict. We need help. And there's only one who can help us. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ himself became a slave. He entered into bondage to set us free. I've hinted at it, but this passage in numerous ways connects with the story of the Exodus. The hand of God being glorified or hard is in the story of the Exodus and in our text. Uh, uh, God moving the oppressors uh, to send away or set free his people and the ark is in the story of the Exodus in here. The, the people groaning as Israel uh, did under the hands of the Egyptians and the Philistines under God's hand and their cry going up uh, to heaven. The Lord Jesus, uh, as he was with his disciples, one day went up on a mountain. There on the mountain he was transfigured before his three disciples. And Elijah and Moses appeared. 
And Luke tells us uh, that they were talking with him who appeared in his glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus appeared in his glory and he spoke of his exodus. That's the word that's being translated, departure. Jesus' exodus, the fulfillment of all that the uh, first exodus actually stood for happens as Jesus goes to Jerusalem and dies in our uh, place. And through his deaths, doing what was unthinkable uh, to the people who saw him as the Messiah, accomplishes what could be accomplished for us in no other way. He is indeed our Redeemer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And we ask now as we come uh, to this, his table, that pictures for us and uh, by your Spirit has the power to minister to us the very grace which he achieved. We come to this table with faith. And now we set apart these elements uh, for this a holy purpose. And we ask, O oh gracious God, that you would come, unmask our idols, uh, free us, restore us, uh, Lord, out of our illusions to a place of true joy. For we 